0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by our friends at the International Culinary Center. For more information, visit www.internationalculinarycenter.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Welcome to Cooking Issues This is Dave Arnold You're a host of Cooking Issues Coming to you live At Reverse Pizzeria Every Tuesday From roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 On the Heritage Radio Network.org, Dot org, Jack? Dot org Oh, man Yeah Dot org Joined, as always With uh, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez Keeping the Cooking Issues machine running Jack And, of course, today We have a special guest Special guest producer Aaron Marks Who bid for this uh, guest producing spot uh, at uh, the last museum of food and drink uh, fundraiser that we had, right, right. Uh, now, uh, you, know, you know, Aaron's actually working on an interesting uh, food-related project right now, which I'm going to let him talk about in a second. But remember, call in your questions two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Now, Aaron. Aside from bidding on this uh, great thing and being with us today Was uh, a, a long time ago or Not that long I guess A member of my favorite great Satan Which is uh, the Gold- Goldman Sachs Which I've always had actually a soft spot for Because I love history of finance is a great thing He's not doing that anymore uh, He is in fact working on a project called Deconstructing Dinner You want to talk about that? Yeah, and sure. maybe Thanks. about the great Satan Because I love Thanks. those guys <laughs>
3: well, we'll, leave, we'll leave my past out of it uh, it's not, It doesn't really sit well with a lot of people But uh, I have turned my passions towards uh, Towards my, my, my hobbies, uh, really Which is food uh, and restaurants So we are produced a documentary called Deconstructing Dinner on the farm-to-table movement um, Really to educate people on, on the origins of food um, Really kind of the twist here is, is That we, we focus on individual staple ingredients uh, We've been filming with a couple Really excellent chefs Michael Anthony last week Heather Carlucci in New York uh, We did the pilot with Michael Statlander on pork Up in Toronto He has a beautiful farm up there um, and uh, to supplement all the, these great mini-series uh, we, we have uh, some webisodes and, and a lot of extra bonus material That, that link these award-winning chefs in So um, we're, we're really excited for it we, uh, We're in the process of fundraising at the moment uh, We need uh, about $60,000 by July 20th uh, You can check us out on our Kickstarter campaign uh, we, just, we just passed 100 backers online um, So we're doing well uh, It's deconstructing dinner on Kickstarter
2: and you, uh, you've already filmed One of the Last time I spoke with you Was what You were working on Eight or nine episodes
3: Yeah we've, we've uh, We're focused on six At the moment uh, We have a, Each of them is going to be a Garlic or wheat Or eggs We, we just did a, a shot on honey uh, In a farm outside of New York um, And uh, March 2013 spring 2013 is when we we hope we have a finished product
2: right and you're uh, is is, he the, is Declan the uh, the director the producer both or?
3: De- Declan Driscoll is uh, Driscoll and John Stein are the two two folks that I'm partnering with on this uh, Declan is the filmmaker behind this uh, he won a, a James Beard award uh, last year for his documentary called called milk war uh, which was about raw milk uh, very fascinating story and uh, John Styman is is kind of the I, I guess I refer to him as the Mark Bittman of Canada uh, he he <laughs> <laughs> he, he's so well versed in in the the, the farm to table movement uh and he he uh he does a lot of spe- he goes around speaking about it um so he he actually had a radio show by the same name Deconstructing Dinner uh and this is the reincarnation onto the screen
2: nice so go to kickstarter and go look at deconstructing dinner on kickstarter
3: exactly that or just go to deconstructingdinner.com
2: right all right nice all right very good all right so uh and uh, Aaron also brought me. I was. Been re- we were talking last time. we were talking about uh, Michael Lewis, the uh, the financial writer, and uh, he I, he just brought me a copy of The Big Short to read. I actually read his later book, Boomerang, which if, if any of you guys aren't interested in uh, kind of financial history, I'm not interested in finances at all. I really could give a rat's behind about my own finances. I've never. Otherwise, I guess we'd be rich, right? But Anyway, uh, but uh, I don't really care about it. But I love I love myself some financial history, and I've sadly have been um, <clears throat> you know lacking in recent financial history until um, Maria Gorn Shelley, our publisher, for, you know, uh, for my cocktail book and coming up, gave me a Michael Lewis book, and uh, now Aaron you know brought me the other one. So hopefully, I'm going to be up to date uh, with our current financial woes and the amusing history behind it uh, very soon, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, Michael Lewis is a great writer
2: yeah. Anyway, okay, now on to questions By the way, uh, this one in from Pete actually gave a call out to Indie Jesus But I'd like our, our readers to know, uh, listeners to know that I have not seen Indie Jesus in a long time Jack, have you seen I, Indie I Jesus? I see him, I don't think he's working this shift anymore But I have to say, really nice guy Yeah, but is, does he not work this shift because of his hatred for us? I mean, I guess it's possible, but I, I, I would guess not no, no yeah, I mean prob- Je- probably not. Jesus probably shouldn't have any hatred
1: in him. And be, be. There are plenty of other interesting characters around, though. We just need to coin a name for somebody.
2: All right. Well, for those of you that you know have never heard, Indie Jesus is a waiter here who is uh, looks like Jesus in in kind of indie rock clothes. And I, I miss him. I miss seeing Indie Jesus during the during the broadcast. I think he made our broadcast better just by his presence. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. We didn't we have a Manson Jesus for a while. There are plenty no, that of Manson that, Jesus. That oh that was at a coffee event that was a different Manson Jesus was at a different event sorry okay Uh, okay love the podcast been blitzing through your back catalog quickly as I just discovered it recently keep up the great work and thank you thank you Uh, question I recently purchased a combi steam oven I wanted a small oven for day to day stuff and I love to bake bread and there's nothing that compares to steam for making that amazing crust the oven does a great job with things like soft boiled eggs in large quantities and steam fish etc and has very precise temperature controls which got me thinking I could use this bad boy for low temp cooking and sous vide and I would love to get your thoughts Pete okay um, okay, look. I don't know. You've you got to write in and tell me what brand of combi oven you have. Uh, I, the smaller ones, there used to be one made by Electrolux that kind of fit on a counter that was uh, maybe microwave size or a little bit bigger. And, uh, of course, Gaggenau makes one that's fantastically expensive. If you can afford Gaggenau uh, appliances in your home, God bless. Um, but um, combi steam oven, for those of you that don't know, is an oven that uses a combination of steam technology and convection technology and recently have been used in restaurants to do uh, low-temperature cooking because they have very accurate temperature controls, and the reason they have accurate temperature controls is because they need accuracy to be able uh, able to achieve the results that they want to achieve without any sort of human intervention, and the byproduct is is that we get to use it for very accurate low temperature work, typically by setting uh, the temperature of the oven below uh, the boiling point well below, uh, you know, down to like, you know, uh, 55 Celsius thereabouts, and 100% humidity which gives good thermal uh, transfer Now, uh, commercial combi ovens are in the on average the higher end ones Rationale being one and um, uh, Electrolux being another and uh, there's you know several others um on average they are fairly accurate but at any given second their temperature can fluctuate quite a bit and it's because they inject steam into the cavity which shoots the temperature up uh, then the temperature goes down they shoot more steam it goes up 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 so um, the answer is for very thin items it does not work very well for low temperature cooking because those thin items can't handle the short term over temp that you go through as the temperature porpoises back and forth uh, thicker items can withstand that uh, so so, because the temperature, you know, modernist cuisine, um, Chris Young, who's on the show, and Nathan Mirvold uh, said the same thing, and Maxime Belay, when they were here, all, you know, talked about this uh, very interesting data that they had, which was they actually measured the temperature of combi ovens using many kind of high-accuracy um, uh, temperature probes and showed that there was, a, when I say wide, I'm talking like tens of degrees variation uh, from second to second based on the internal temperature of the cavity. Now, how can you uh, test this? Set your oven to 100% steam, set the temperature to some temperature. Are well below boiling, uh, and then test it with something simple like an egg. If you stick an egg in there, uh, and after an hour, the uh, at 62 Celsius, and after an hour, the yolk is still runny, but the, it cracks out of the egg and has kind of a the, the white has a very kind of you know uh, custardy texture. I think then that's a good 62 egg. You're pretty much good. Uh, if you then set it to 63 go for an hour and it's got a very creamy yolk but it's all one texture very creamy like a sauce almost uh, then you've produced an accurate 63 degree egg if you go to 64 degrees uh, and your yolk is just set just set but still very very soft you have a very accurate 64 degree egg on a large egg and these are extremely simple and extremely accurate and reliable temperature tests for um, your combi to see whether or not you are getting the actual temperatures that you think you are getting if those three numbers come out right then you're good you know what I mean and in fact if your oven is repeatedly wrong right you, you can dial up or down a degree or two and figure out what your thing is actually set to so if 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 what I tell you is a 63-degree egg actually happens at 65, well, your oven's about two degrees hot uh, in terms of the way that it, it works, as long as it, the humidity is 100 percent. Hervétis made a, a, a huge error. Uh, you know, those, those who know me know I'm no fan of Hervétis. You know, this is a well-known fact. I'm no fan of him or his, his writing or his demagoguery. But – uh, he believes that a 65 degrees Celsius uh, egg is still runny, uh, and he did all of his tests in an oven. And the reason his, um, the reason his numbers are completely wrong is because they weren't done in a 100% humidity environment. And uh, they were actually, steam moisture was evaporating out of the egg during the process, thereby lowering the temperature of uh, the inside of the egg through evaporative cooling. And because there was evaporative cooling, the inside of the egg was roughly three degrees uh, or so lower than the actual oven temperature was, even though he was fairly accurately controlling his oven temperature. Just goes to show what happened when you don't really think about what you're doing, Hervé. Anyway, uh, enough b- bashing on uh, Hervé. That, that answers that question, yeah? Yes. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Anything? It
3: presupposes that all eggs are the same,
2: yeah? Uh, well, all large chicken eggs act. I mean, I'm talking, this isn't just, um, this isn't like one or two eggs I've cooked. Like, for the past, you know, seven years, I've been cooking a bazillion eggs uh, as part of a teaching, um, you know, as part of teaching over the years, and uh, in the restaurant at the French Culinary and at home. And I can pretty much tell whether or not an equipment is right by how a large chicken egg is cooked in terms of time. Uh, You know, other eggs might be slightly different, but the major ones – for instance, like some people have reported like slightly different temperatures on things like duck. I don't have any experience on ostrich eggs or things like that, although I have friends that do. Uh, But they're pretty accurate, reliable measures of, um, of temperature. You know, at least that's been that's been my experience, and they're incredibly cheap, and they're much easier to implement uh, than trying to rig actual accurate um, thermometers in your in your oven. I mean, it's possible to rig an, an accurate thermometer, but you have to get a good rig, and uh, you know, on top of that, you have to. I mean, it, you can just go to a supermarket and buy a bunch of eggs. Set the sucker at 63, what I would really set it at 63 Celsius, right? And then see whether the egg is set or whether it's runny or whether it's creamy. If it's creamy, you're dead on, right? If it's runny, then your oven is low. And if it's set, then your oven is high, assuming you have 100% humidity in that oven. That's another assumption that you got to make. And then later on, if you want to get accurate thermocouples, you can test it and see what's going on, blah, blah, blah. But the reason I chose an egg is an egg is fairly thick. It takes uh, a good... Um, It takes a good hour for the very center of an egg to get uh, within a half a degree or so of the temperature of uh, in a water bath, that is. So if you have a 10-minute fluctuation in temperature in your oven, an egg should be thick enough that most of that temperature fluctuation is taken up by the egg white and not by the egg yolk. And so you shouldn't get any over or under temp effects in the yolk after an hour of cooking because it should have evened out by then. That's why egg, good choice. Cutlet, not so much. You know what I mean? yeah anyway, okay. Uh, what do you say, Jack? You say some? No, I didn't. Yeah. Should we go to our first commercial break? Yeah. Commercial break, come back, cooking issues. If
1: you want to be a great chef you can't learn everything from within the walls of a classroom that's why the French culinary Institute has evolved into the International culinary Center when you come here you don't just learn basic culinary skills you come to understand and to feel the whole culinary world you have to network you have to observe the true meaning of world-class performance you have to intern at some of the world's great restaurants at the International culinary Center's campuses in New York California and Italy we will expose you to the whole of the culinary world One that is evolving daily at a very high speed. The International Culinary Center offers a wide range of courses, including culinary, pastry, and bread baking, to Italian, wine, management, culinary technology, and food writing. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. You're listening to Propeller by Bluto.
2: Wow, you're pulling out all the old, all the old Bluto songs from the college days. Oh yeah, <laughs> that uh, that song. I can remember playing that song wearing a uh, flight helmet with a blast shield down, with my fingers like spraying blood out of the bass, and the lead singer smashing me on the head with a microphone. And that was, a, that was a, the 90s, the early 90s. Good times, good times. Anyway. Uh, we should we should probably see whether or not listeners mind being uh, assaulted with uh, my old college band, because we could just move to you know Jack's music anyway. Uh, second question in, I'm fermenting two types of vinegar in my basement now. The first is a beer barley malt syrup vanilla vinegar, and the other is a bourbon buckwheat honey caraway seed vinegar. I'm using the method from ideasandfood.com with the live culture vinegar as a starter that is added to the alcohol mixture. The beer version was complete after three weeks, and the bourbon is already on week five. How long should I wait for the bourbon version before I start over? I'm thinking the alcohol content was too high for fermentation. Any thoughts? Elliot Papineau. Okay. Uh, I looked for, uh, you know, our good friend's ideas and food, Alex Nackey. Uh, I looked on their website for their vinegar method and wasn't able to find any explicit instructions on their website proper, but they did publish a, uh, an article on it in Popular Science. When they, I, are they still writing for Popular Science? Does anyone know? Don't know. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I looked at their Popular Science article on, on it and, in fact, found a maple um, syrup... A maple syrup... Uh, a maple syrup um, What's the word I'm looking for? Maple syrup, rum, vinegar base that they, they made their vinegar out of. And so I'm assuming, Elliot, that you're basing it on, on that technique. Uh, here's what I'm thinking. There's a couple of things that can go wrong in uh, vinegar. So vinegar, for those of you that uh, have no idea how vinegar is made, you take a, a fairly low concentration of alcohol product uh, and then acetobacter, uh, acetobacter acts on the alcohol and converts the ethanol to vinegar now uh in the ideas in food uh Recipe: They use 950 grams of maple syrup, which is a lot of freaking maple syrup, because it's eight, they use 950 grams of maple syrup, 800 grams of what they call a live vinegar, which is a vinegar that is currently has active acetobacter in it, right? Um, so assuming you're already making vinegar, you have some vinegar sitting around that's still alive, still has active acetobacter in it. Uh, 300 grams of dark rum and 200 grams of water. If you calculate this all out, uh, uh, and I calculated it based on the assumption that the maple syrup was about 80 uh, bricks, meaning 80% sugar and about 20% water, uh, you're going to end up with a, an alcohol, uh, a water vinegar slash ethanol mix that's roughly uh, 11% uh, uh, alcohol, I think. i got to go look at my calculations again. I did it on Excel this morning, but I think it's roughly 11% alcohol, which is a good number. Maybe even lower maybe it 's like eight, I forget, but it 's a good number for acetobacter to work on. I was a little concerned uh, with this that the because the bricks of this mixture is like thirty percent it 's very high bricks uh, that bricks meaning bri- bricks is the percent. Uh, of uh, of the weight of your product that is sugar that's what bricks means, uh, and uh, if you do the calculations, I think this mixture that that ideas and food has uh, ends up about thirty bricks. There's good news and there's bad news with that. I mean, high bricks things usually tend to inhibit the uh, action of bacteria because they really mess with um, what's called osmoregulation, the ability uh, for the cells to keep uh, water uh, their water balance uh, proper. But balsamic vinegar uh, is uh, made with musts that are even higher bricks than this, so. Clearly, Acetobacter can uh, work in these environments. You are probably, and this is a good thing, if you want to keep the sugar in it, if you want it to stay very sugary, uh, the high sugar level and the uh, massive acidity from the pre-made vinegar is almost surely inhibiting the uh, inhibiting any further yeast activity. Uh, basically, as soon as, uh, as, soon as the uh, acidity gets higher than about a percent or so, especially in, uh, with a lot – the yeast is going to have a tough uh, time anyway with uh, 30% bricks, really tough time. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'd need, you need special yeast anyway that were very sugar tolerant to be able to go up that high. And, um, and then w- in combination with that, with the fact that they're already using vinegar, yeast is not going to be a problem in this mixture. Uh, so it should work. So your problems are probably you went too high in the alcohol and the acetobacter can't uh, work, in which case dilute it some more and throw some fresh – uh, vinegar mother in you can order you know uh, acetobacter cultures and uh, off of the internet uh, two you could have although it doesn 't sound like your ingredients in there like you have any preservatives That 're going to cause a problem like uh, or like chlorine can be a problem sometimes or or whether you have uh, sulfites because you 're not adding a sulphide wine to it, so that 's probably not a problem. You could have a problem with not enough oxygen contact if your vessel 's not proper or if it 's sealed too hard or if because acetobacter needs oxygen to live so uh, any one of these things can be a problem uh, if you want to read more about vinegar, the book. Like the book is Vinegars of the World by uh, Lisa, uh, edited by Lisa Solieri and uh, Paolo uh, Giudici, from uh, 2009, fantastical book, and they have uh, sections on almost any kind of vinegar that you could um, you could want. But you should uh, take take a look at that one. Right? That makes sense. Yeah. or you started with some dead, dead vinegar too that's the other thing right I would just look if you don't already have a lot of vinegar lying around just buy some freaking culture don't worry about trying to like go buy apple cider vinegar from a natural health food store and hope that it works I've had this problem when uh, culturing buttermilk trying to make uh, cultured butter and you buy certain strains of certain things even if they're not pasteurized and it turns out that they're bacteriologically dead because they've been around a long time and the bacteria haven't survived enough for things to happen so uh, I mean eventually you can you know do things based on wild cultures or just luck and hope and prayer, but you know, at the outset, if you want to make sure your results are good and your recipe is good, just start with a purchase culture. It's not that hard to get a hold of, and it's fairly easy. That's my a suggestion. Okay. Uh, Tristan in Virginia writes in, hey, everyone. I'm tenderizing pork shoulder in my home pressure cooker, and many uh, and many recommendations I've seen onli- online recommend the natural release method of pressure instead of quick releasing, citing a few manufacturers' websites, and mainly Lorna Sass, an author of a pressure cooking cookbook. Sass strongly recommend Natural release for meat, especially beef, claiming the fibers will be more tender. Why would a slower ramp down in pressure affect the meat fibers, and why would beef behave more differently from pork or any other meat, assuming a similar leanness and connective tissue? Thanks from Tristan. Pressure cooking and uh, natural release. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, uh, pressure cookers, uh, you seal your object in a, in a pressure cooker, you heat it. Uh, by, by sealing it, you allow a pressure to build up that increases the temperature at which things cook things cook faster. They also cook differently. So an egg white, an egg, whole egg cooked in a pressure cooker turns brown because at the elevated temperatures in a pressure cooker, roughly 259 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 uh, PSI overpressure at boiling, uh, assuming straight water, that is, uh, egg whites will turn brown in an hour due to Maillard reactions at the slightly elevated temperatures uh, inside of a pressure cooker. Things like garlic, uh, you destroy their pungency. We've We've talked about this before. I love pressure cookers. I love me some pressure cookers. But I also almost always recommend a natural release. And what that means is when you have a pressure cooker at 15 PSI and you turn off the heat, it's going to keep on cooking for a while. That's just simply uh, all there is to it. This is one of the good things about a pressure cooker, by the way, is that they take very, once you get them hot, it takes a very, very low input of energy to keep them cooking because they're sealed. They don't throw a lot of heat on from the atmosphere. So in the summertime, even though you don't necessarily want to eat a lot of braises and stews in the summertime, it's an extremely efficient way to not heat up your house and do cooking, right? It also uses a very low amount of energy for the amount of uh, cooking you can do in it. And so it's, it's great all around. But uh, now you're stuck with a pot and it's going to keep cooking. So there's, usually there's some way to open the pot to the atmosphere and steam rockets out of it. Right? That's the quick release. And even quicker sometimes release is to plunge the pot into cold water, which, you know, instantly lowers the pressure, sometimes even faster than releasing the steam. Uh, Or you just let it sit and let the pressure come down naturally. As it cools, the pressure will come down. As soon as it gets below 212 degrees on the inside, there will be no more pressure on the vessel, and you can open it up with no problem. Now, uh... I think you are absolutely correct, uh, Tristan, in that uh, I don't think it makes a damn bit of difference whether it's beef, pork, chicken, fish, or whatever. I think you should almost always use natural release on anything that's delicate at all. Because what happens is is um, when, you are, when you release the pressure very suddenly, the water on the inside and outside and everywhere tends to violently boil. And what it does is rip things apart. And so the easiest thing to see it on is uh, uh, like if you pressure cook an egg and you open it very, very quickly uh, by opening, you'll, you, you can blow the egg up. You know what I mean? Not violently like microwave blowing up is violent, but you'll crack the eggs open. Uh, if you've ever pressure cooked a can of evaporated, uh, sweetened condensed milk rather to make uh, dulce de leche, you'll know that unless you let the can heat uh, cool down quite a bit, when you open it, it'll squirt product everywhere because all of a sudden the pressure is, is released. Beans tend to explode it if they're, if they're released too suddenly. And the texture of meats can be very uh, highly effective by uh, violent sudden release. So I unless you know that your product is like really rough and tough and can handle the abuse of interior boiling or unless you actually want to shred something apart by interior boiling, I almost always recommend uh, natural release on a pressure cooker instead of allowing it to to, to vent to the atmosphere. Sometimes it doesn't matter, but often, uh, often it does. You do any pressure cooking, Aaron?
3: I don't do much cooking at all, actually. No? I uh, grew up in New York, so it's, my kitchen was about the size of most people's closets.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true You know, cooking in New York A lot of people have problems Cooking in New York uh, There's size And also ventilation Is a big issue Everyone's apartment in New York Is horribly ventilated For cooking So anytime you actually Do try and cook You uh, you end up uh, Making the entire And then Everyone's like Oh, it smells of food Yeah, but oil caked All over your ceiling Is never pleasant
4: We have a, a call In
2: from the studio If it's okay it, This born- is Patrick Martins By the way Who's uh, he's like uh, uh, What's up?
4: I'm born and raised In New York City And I've lived in some You know apartments very very small kitchens I will say this it forces one to become better uh, at very minimal ingredients like for instance cook or you know techniques like cooking perfectly medium rare you know because you don't really have the luxury of space to be braising and have like a Julia Child kitchen with stuff all over the place but you do know how not to overcook a chicken because it's you alone with that thing and a pot of vegetables you know I think braising is fairly space efficient though no like one pot braising um. No, no, I don't know You know what I mean It's just like all these recipes Everyone comes to the Heritage Meat Shop Hey, give me a Boston Buck Because I want to do a 19-hour breeze And I'm going to make seven reduction sauces You know, and me growing up in the city in a little, you know, stove pot You know, I'm just like Let me just heat some meat perfectly And dip it in mustard You know, something like that Just simple Not trying to get too gastronomic about it Alright, alright I mean,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I, What do you think about that, Nastasha?
1: I agree. I especially don't want to be in my apartment
4: with no air conditioning for 18 hours braising something. You
2: know? That's uh, Didn't I just tell you guys to buy a freaking pressure cooker if you're going to braise? Did I not just get through telling you guys to buy a pressure cooker so that you're not heating up your apartment when you're doing a braise? Did anyone not hear me say that? We heard you. Yeah. I heard you. Yeah, or the fact that in general you don't want braises in the freaking summertime. We heard you. Yeah. But you know what You know what? your New York City tiny apartment's not good at? Grilling a freaking steak. <laughs> <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. True. Yeah, hey, I rely on my foreman every now and then.
2: Oh, the foreman! You know, I never had one of those. Genius! Like George Foreman has nothing to do with cooking, right? <laughs> At all. Nothing. They were like, hey, you're a good boxer. You have a bunch of children all named George. Why don't you be the rep for this product? He
4: does have a, a talent in shaking and baking, though. I
2: mm. mean, like, lit. What is that? Is that what he used to say when he was fighting? Or are you actually referring to shake and bacon, shaking and
4: He did call him. Uh, he did refer to himself as doing that once. But Davian Nelson of NPR, uh, Lost and Found Sound, did a story on George Foreman Grills saying that it basically allowed uh, homeless people to have a kitchen. I mean, if they just could get access to an outlet, they could basically prepare meals like people in their homes. So it was a very kind of Democrat, uh, you know, project. More than people
2: give it credit for. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, Homeless people
1: could feel like
2: they had a home. Homeless people who have the money for a George Foreman grill and an electric socket. Have you seen that movie about the mole people?
1: Finding an electric socket.
2: The mole people used to have, the people used to live in what's called the freedom, oh, wait. Patrick, you can't leave after dropping that thing on No, they, listen like, they, they, like, Okay, so there, there used to be a thing called the, Or it might still be called that The Freedom Tunnel in New York Which is an old Amtrak tunnel Which was uh, graffitied by a famous uh, graffiti person Named Freedom something or whatever And there were people down there Who used to actually steal electricity And those guys could uh, I, I assume could get a hold of a George Foreman grill And grill without a home But I mean the vast majority of people That have no home Also have no access to electric power I I I mean That's true. That's true.
4: But, I mean, you can get access. Damn it. If someone was like, get me access to an electrical outlet, I would do it. I would still (laughs) figure it out somehow, even if I'm, like, going into the Middle Eastern restaurant around the corner and just borrowing his electricity for 10 minutes. But, I mean, it did allow them to have a carry-around portable kitchen. I mean, not a full kitchen, of course, but they could heat meat and grill, like, you know.
2: This has to be one of the craziest conversations we've ever had on the Cooking Issues Radio Show. You know, I'll tell you this though: when I lived in a dorm room and didn't have, say. yeah, uh, when I lived in a dorm room and didn't have uh, a kitchen, I went to the thrift shop and bought a Westinghouse turkey oven from the '50s and used it to bake bread. I mean, that was kind of my first oven away from home was this kind of thrift store oven. So dorm rooms. I mean, it it's definitely kind of like being homeless. Yeah.
3: <laughs> college, college student. Yeah, well, I no, guess. We cooked everything in a hot pot back then.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like being homeless with the world's greatest support network around you, is what you're saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. With like, everyone like, just catering to every need that you have and not forcing you to have any responsibility. Other than that, completely like the real world. No offense to you college students out there. Anyway, uh, I loved college. Nastasha's the only person who didn't like college. True? True. 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 Yeah. All right. This is, a, this is a crazy day. Okay. Uh, hello, Jack and Nastasha and Dave as well. I uh, hope you guys are doing well with all the heat out there. My question has to do with sugar substitutes. I grew up being afraid of NutraSweet, Sweet and Low, a.k.a. saccharin, and other sugar substitutes, thinking that they cause cancer and lead to birth defects. I know that NutraSweet is banned in other countries, which is not to say – look, other can- countries ban lots of other weird things, by the way. Like what another country does, or our country for that matter, uh, you know – isn't really a measure necessarily Of whether something is safe or not It's a measure of whether or not There's enough of a public outcry Based sometimes in fact And sometimes not uh, Anyway uh, Banned in other countries uh, My wife likes to drink diet soda And I cringe when she does uh, this, Just so you guys know uh, for ma- I drink almost exclusively seltzer now But for many, many years I only drank diet soda That was what I drank Because uh, I grew up drinking it that was my liquid of choice. And uh, before I even finish this question, I will tell anyone out here who's going to work for, uh, who's buying things for their grill or barbecue or party for Fourth of July tomorrow. If you are a regular soda drinker, you are going to purchase the incorrect amount of diet soda. Okay, this is you are going to get the wrong amount. Here's the here's how it works. When you are purchasing soda for a party, realize that someone who drinks a sugarful soda, let's just say Coke, right? Uh, uh, the average soda drinker will have maybe one glass of that coke right so a two liter bottle will serve a good number of people for coca cola right the average diet coke drinker will finish the entire freaking two liter bottle themselves because they're going to sit there and pound diet coke like the like, like nobody's freaking business so I guarantee you that unless you yourself are a diet soda drinker you underbuy your diet soda anyone here anyone here what do you think agree disagree well, I'll be drinking beer tomorrow yeah, I don't well, I'm know saying so
1: much about soda drinkers.
2: What? Like we, we you just we did you say that you don't care about your guests. Most guests drink.
1: I, I, don't I think this is going to drink soda tomorrow. Oh my god,
2: people, people, you know, people. Anyway, I'm just telling you, if you're going to get a non-alcoholic drink, you're 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 you should have at least no less than one to one on diet to regular soda, no less. And in fact, you should probably have. For whatever your non-alcoholic basis, if you're going to do soda, you should have two, two-thirds diet and one-third regular. That's general, you know, whatever. Anyway, if, if I'm coming, just get seltzer. You need some non-alcoholic stuff. I mean, beer is relatively low in alcohol, so you can pound that all day. But if you're sitting there pounding wine after wine after wine after wine after wine, you need some non-alcoholic products. I and mean, as we all know, water is wretched. Uh, just kidding. I just happen to not drink water. I drink, I drink seltzer only. Okay, sorry. Back to the question. Uh, my wife likes to drink diet soda, and I cringe when she does. Is that rational or just paranoid? What, re- what research uh, and studies have been done around the safety of sugar substitutes, which are safe and which are not? What is the process of their production? Uh, lastly, I've heard about isomalt and mannitol, sugars that are used for culinary purposes and not for diet sodas necessarily. What is the deal with those in terms of safety? And aside, aside from that, uh, what is their culinary value in the kitchen? Finally, I was in New York briefly and went down to uh, the bar. That's Booker and Dax, our bar. The drinks are awesome, but there were no pretzels. Please put some on the menu. Maybe we should have some pretzels on the menu. Yeah, Sounds Martin's good. Brothers. Sounds good. Martin, Martin Pretzels, because they're the best. Uh, thanks so much for keeping the airwaves delicious. Brian in San Francisco. Okay, first of all, isomalt and manitol are used uh, because, uh, well, isomalt is used uh, a lot in confectionery, with uh, kind of higher end, uh, what's it like technological cooking because it doesn't absorb moisture as much, doesn't turn as brown as much uh, when you're cooking it into a caramel. It's nice and hard, so you use it a lot in um, in blown sugar work or in confectionery. Or if you look at like what Ferran and those guys do, making those and Jose Andres and making those uh, those like isomalt packages with it with the uh, olive oil in them. So they're 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 great for that, and they're slightly less uh, they're less sweet than sugar. So they have a lot of the structural Properties of sugar without uh, all the sweetness. Manitol is a, you know a little bit different. I don't really use that one in the kitchen. Um, but let's go back to what I think is the important part of the question here: is is are uh, what what are called non-nutritive sweeteners are they dangerous or not? And uh, <clears throat> the the short answer is, is all the research points to them not being dangerous. Every actual bit of current scientific research points to non-nutritive sweeteners being absolutely uh, fine from a a health perspective. Now, um, you know, uh, and, you know, you can look at, and I I can't even believe that I'm uh, quoting these guys because I don't, you know, it's not my normal thing. And and again, I'm not usually a health guy. I'm not the guy to ask health questions of. But if you read the the, recent paper, for instance, in 2012, the position of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics... Which, you know, again, for any of you who've ever listened to me uh, go on a rant and rave about this, you know that uh, I have uh, big problems with the entire um, uh, nutritionist kind of – um, outlook on things because it keeps changing like all, all the data, all the ideas like what 's good what 's bad, keep changing every every year what changes salt 's good salt's bad, this is good, this is bad so i tend to I tend to regard every every piece of information as horse hockey uh, except for the one that I always go back to, which is eat uh, eat a moderate amount of a wide variety of things i mean i 'm overweight right now and it 's because I eat too much freaking food it 's because I eat an absurd amount of freaking food my total caloric consumption is way higher than it should be and that 's that's God's truth. It doesn't matter which kind of calorie I'm consuming, I'm consuming too much of it. Okay, that said, uh, the position of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics uh, does, and you should look at this, Cindy uh, Fitch, uh, PhD, and Catherine Kime, PhD, where they uh, the main authors on it, and it's, they do an exhaustive review of all of the studies, uh, aspartame, which is NutraSweet, uh, a lot of people used to worry about aspartame because it has the warning on it, phenylketonur- uh, about phenylketonuria, which is a, it, basically, it's a genetic disorder. If you have it, you know you have it. You were tested at birth. And yes, uh, you know, your brain can be damaged because you don't... Um, you don't metabolize uh, phenylalanine, which is an amino acid, also present in proteins. Uh, you don't metabolize it properly. And when NutraSweet is broken down in the body, it creates an excess of phenylalanine in the system, and so you should be aware of it. For all the rest of us, uh, that's fine. Uh, and uh, there's never been uh, any study, uh, or there's no current study anyway, that shows that there's been any sort of um, problem with it. Uh, and the average consumption, even for people who pound diet soda all day, according to this article, is uh, below um, your your you know your recommended maximum uh, daily intake to have have any issues. Saccharin uh, was uh, banned because there was uh, some uh, bladder cancer studies in rats in I think the 70s, late 70s or 80s, and the uh, the, the problem was is that uh, they were feeding these rats an absurd amount of uh, saccharin, and it turns out that uh, that all of the actual studies done, uh, and this is major study. Done um, with people uh, over time, measuring their incidence of uh, bladder cancer or other cancers with saccharin intake, have shown that uh, in fact it's not uh, in fact it's not true, uh, and and, um, and basically the government realizes this, but they're not going back. Like anyway, the the point is that there's no current studies that anyone can uh, point to. Uh, there's no studies that haven't been debunked that show that saccharin causes uh, any any sort of uh, problem. Uh, sucralose. Um, uh, sucralose again in other words like all of the ones that are being used even cyclamates which were the first one to be banned because of cancer studies current research seems to show that cyclamates uh, don't actually cause uh, any any sort of cancer sucralose I'll just give you a gross fact about it you don't break it down so you pee and poop it out so theoretically if you eat a lot of sucralose your pee and poop will be sweet if you were to try it uh, I, I wouldn't go ahead and try it but I'm just saying uh, like that's that's uh, the case um So the long story short, every single piece of evidence I was able to find that was not put out by a crank or a quack goes to show that uh, non-nutritive sweeteners are uh, fine to use. Uh, Whether you think that they're gross from a mental perspective and therefore should not be used because they're an abomination because what you should do is uh, eat products that are made with care and that taste good and that non-nutritive sweeteners taste bad and not like real sugar and therefore uh, are an abomination. I think that's a valid point uh you know also uh, another I tried to look at a bunch of studies that uh, looked into whether or not um there you know one of the arguments back in the day was that if you ate uh sugar substitutes your body would have an increased uh desire for other foods and therefore you would actually eat more because you weren't getting the sugar from the taste of sweet and they would increase your consumption of other solids and then you wouldn't regulate properly apparently all that's horse hockey too I don't found any current studies that show that that's the case uh And then after I researched this, I looked at another uh, interesting uh, article. Uh, Did you know that with uh, – because this kind of goes back to uh, what happened – what was it, last week, Jack, with the question on Bloomberg sugar ban? Last week? Yeah. Uh, Did you know that over the past uh, three years, the consumption of sugar per capita in the United States has gone down? Really? Yeah. It's gone down. You know Why? Because we're drinking less freaking soda because it's gotten such bad press, so everyone is talking about everyone's talking about all of these uh, these problems. But if you actually look at the data, right, the actual current data, the data since people have been starting to scream about uh, sugar being the the, the the evil that that you know, and, and in fact, like there's a the, the the studies show that our sugar content, like since that time in the past four, five, six years, has started to go down. And, and the very most conservative estimates that it's leveled off. Our general caloric intake way freaking high, right? Our general caloric intake has gone up, but uh, our sugar consumption has gone down, or at least stabilized. And some of these numbers, I, I you know, I only had a couple of hours to research it, so it's hard for me to make any actual pronouncements. But if you go and look online, like one of the one of the articles to look at uh, is called uh, "Where Is It." Consumption of added sugars is decreasing in the United States by J. A. Welsh and A. J. Sharma, Uh, and they're using their data comes from the Nutrition and Health Science. uh, Sorry, their uh, data comes from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Uh, So go look at that, Um, and uh, you know it's just it just goes to show that these problems are much more complicated than banning sugar or 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 trying to ban sodas to to try and get rid of uh, sugar consumption. That sugar is uh, not some sort of horrible uh, poison. Uh, you know, one of the big um, one of the big people out there who's anti sugar is a doctor in California named Robert uh, Lustig, and he's been writing a lot of articles, getting a lot of play. Uh, and I, I don't have the the time. I haven't had the time to to look at his uh, articles thoroughly enough to. Debunk what he writes in them, but he writes articles with titles like "Fructose: Metabolic, Hedonic, and Societal Parallels with Ethanol." Because basically, the man thinks that sugar is a poison and a drug. With uh, you know, so did KRS-One, by the way, uh, with kind of parallels to ethanol, and is on an anti-sugar cake. Interestingly, you know, this same group of doctors actually goes to show how our dietary information was so bad in the in the seventies and eighties decrying uh, fat as the enemy and that those low-fat diets actually uh, caused a lot of problems uh, including obesity and and whatnot and then fail to recognize that their own insistence on sugar as being the ultimate enemy in all of these things is similarly just rotten data from a particular uh, slice in time that I'm sure uh, later on uh, is going to be shown that well they were wrong for a different reason I think again it goes back to uh, and you know I need to spend more time going to the ins and outs of uh, all of the research that they cite but um, it goes back to the point that what you really want to do is eat a uh, wide variety of uh, foods in moderation yeah yeah Oh, another thing. Tomorrow at Roberta's Pizzeria on the 4th of July, uh, Kobayashi is going to be doing a hot dog eating contest sponsored, I guess, by Roberta's and Crift Dogs. Yeah, yeah,
1: and I'm going to be interviewing him.
2: Yeah? Yeah, I mean, if all goes well. What do you mean if all goes well? What could I not mean, go well? The, the man knows how to eat a hot dog.
1: Who knows? He may just have his hands full. But they said if they can wrangle him in here for a minute. you know, I'm going to keep the AC on. I'll have some cold drinks. And uh, the, man, the man's not going to freaking drink anything before the contest. That's a good point. Uh, but I don't think he speaks English, so it should be a fun interview. That's the best. Do you have a translator? I, I think so. I hope so.
2: Well, listen, is there any? If, do you, you don't know if you have a translator? Hey, is there, well, should I put a call out for anyone that speaks Japanese and wants to come translate uh, for no, you?
1: I mean, he will. It's just they said it's going to be crazy, and they hope he can come in here, and at the very least, they're promising a drop, so we'll get Kobayashi trying to say... You know, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. It's going to be awesome. It will be pretty
2: awesome. The man single-handedly kind of made, like, competitive eating, like, kind of a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know the whole story about him,
1: right? Like, he was banned from the contest because he wouldn't sign with the major league eating Union or whatever. You know, they have like the the organization of all the eaters they're represented for competitions and he did not want to sign with them. He wanted his own representation so he could not compete in the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest because he was not in that union. So he showed up anyway with a shirt that said Free Kobe and he kind of crashed the stage and then the police had to kick him out and it was this whole thing. So that's why he'll be here. Kobe Beef or Kobe Bryant? No, Free Kobayashi.
2: Oh, Kobayashi.
1: Right. You know, he just shortened it. So anyway, so he'll be here competing against
2: Nathan's hot dog eating people remotely via video. I mean, did, so, didn't the guy invent the the Dunkin' Smash? I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, it's all kind of. It's. I mean, from an actual, from my perspective as a food person, I mean, the whole thing is kind of gross, like massive consumption. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it, but it's also gross, right? I mean, I think hot dogs are gross. Period. Really? So, yeah, I don't really like. Them. They taste good though. No. That's the problem with them. They taste good. Also, did you know that if you make hot dogs, if you use the proper spices, no matter what meat you make it out of, you know what it tastes like? No. Hot dog. I've made one out of like all out of duck, all hand done, emulsified, blah blah blah. Uh, you know all this thing, trammed everything. Tastes like a hot dog. What's hot dog spice? What is it? What I forget it? what the mix is, but I like anyway. But but that's not my point. Here's here's what I'm going to talk about with with it the, with the, with the eating, right? Back to uh, another one of my non-scientific, just you know, diet trap. But this is my soapbox, so I get to say what I want. A uh, calorie is, in fact. Uh, not uh, a calorie, because your body is not hundred uh, uh, percent efficient right, so if kobayashi, who I believe is current record for this hot dog i don 't know how many minutes it is or whatever, but it 's sixty nine hot dogs right that 's his current record for whatever the the official professional hot dog eating round is is sixty nine hot dogs, which is uh, absurd but uh, that 's two hundred and seventy calories a pop according to the internet 's sixty nine hot dogs is uh, eighteen thousand six hundred and thirty calories in what is it two minutes jack I don't know. I can look it up. Yeah, something like that. Uh, okay, so uh, if you believe that a calorie is a calorie, right, and that they all add up, that would mean that uh, he would gain from that alone in terms of actual body fat 5.3 uh, pounds, right? You, that doesn't happen, though. No. Well, you know what gains 5.3 pounds? His toilet gains 5.3 pounds because your body simply cannot process all of that, all of that food in one schlag. It just can't, it can't be done. Similarly, if you were to drink a gallon of oil… Do you think that you would gain uh, 8.9 pounds, which is the actual – at 3,500 uh, calories per pound is the number that's bandied about. Do you think you would gain 8.9 pounds or do you think you would just run to the toilet and poop it all out? What do you think, Aaron?
3: I I, I hope he pulls the trigger after the contest. Yeah, I, yeah. But I, I imagine it goes right through your system. Right. It, it won, it, it, maybe even out the same way it came in.
2: Wow you think you think you throw it up I've, you know that's tr- I've never seen someone do the gallon of milk cont- uh thing without without throwing it up I we Plus
1: had a with a competitive eater on one of the shows uh Tim Janus, oh I forget what his name was but he called it a reversal of fortune and he said if anybody says the word vomit or puke in front of a competitive oh. eater it's like get out of the room You're, you' can't do that you can't even say the word you mean like when they're just sitting talking uh, yeah or like getting ready for a competition more you know
2: but like after the comp like or especially words, like,
1: after the comp yeah you know
2: but what I'm saying is like Like you know In general casual conversation Are you allowed to say puke? <laughs> That's a good question What about boot?
1: <laughs> also a good We should get We should get him back And on the show
2: Yeah Let's do yeah, it
1: Let's Let's try to do that
2: all right, so, uh, all right. so uh, I think we answered most of the question. Do you have any closing uh, comments here, uh, Aaron, other than go to Kickstarter and go to Deconstructing Dinner and give some freaking money?
3: Yeah, check check out deconstructingdinner.com. Um, we, we, we really need the help of, of all the listeners and and anyone who's, uh, and, and like us on Facebook, too, uh, from the site. Send it to all your friends. Anyone who's passionate about food, I think will will really like this project.
2: All right, well, thank you for uh, being our guest producer today. Thanks to everyone. This has been Cooking Issues.
1: for listening to this program on Heritage Radio Network.org. You can find all of our programs archived on our website or by searching iTunes for Heritage Radio Network You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio You can email us at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization To donate and become a member visit our website Thanks for listening. And I guess can't get it straight.